Right now, Sammy is ensconced on Broadway, starring in Clifford Odets's Golden Boy at the Majestic Theater. Grant can sometimes be spotted in the theater basement, breaking wooden boards with his bare hands. The lines are long for Golden Boy. The show is a smash. It is Sammy's second turn as a Broadway star. This time around, Sammy is portraying a boxer, a fighter. On stage, he is also in love with a white woman. His stage name is Joe. Hers is Lorna. Joe to Lorna. But you don't know how I feel, Lorna. When I'm not with you, I bleed. I got a hole bleeding in my side. Nothing can stop but being with you, because the other half is you, rotten, beautiful. The other half is you, and I'm here on my feet, bleeding, for you. It is true enough. Odetsian stage speak, the rush of words and emotions and strange syntax, but it is also in some way a mirror of the times. America, having a bellwether-like year, is herself constantly on stage. Every day there is an angry new protest and new fears in Selma, in Los Angeles, in Harlem. The bleeding occurs in a lot of places. Sammy himself is quite aware of the danger in the streets. He hates it when fans rush up to him on his left side. His left eye is sightless from a decade-old car crash, and he worries whether he might, in an instant, have to pull his gun. His heroes are cowboys, and he is extremely adept, as many in Hollywood know, at the quick draw. He has been known to dash off to Connecticut, home of Colt, the firearms maker, to have yet another set of guns. Pearl handled, made especially for him. Sammy and I wound up with the reputations of being the fastest draws in Hollywood, says comedian Jerry Lewis, Sammy's longtime friend, whom Sammy sometimes bested in mock showdowns. And I was fast. Is his gun faster than Wyatt Earp's? A magazine article once asked of Sammy. In his dressing room, in front of the mirror, he sometimes practices his quick draw. Two seconds, the hand snatching the gun out, then twirling it back into the holster. Two seconds, don't fuck with Sammy. The big, wonderful, and edgy Golden Boy production. Sammy has already sent some of the proceeds down to Selma to aid in the movement. Suits him just fine, with its mixture of race and sex. With Sammy, there are always new dramas to battle old ones, and always a drama inside the ongoing drama, whatever it happens to be. Thunder in the soul delights him. So, a twirling gun glints in a dressing room mirror. Draw, draw, draw. But who is Sammy Davis Jr.? What forces propelled him into being? How has he come to be proclaimed by many, even in his own ego-ridden profession, the world's greatest entertainer? And why have there been so many motherless nights? Eleven months into his Golden Boy run, Sammy's autobiography was, at long last, ready for publication. The book, Yes I Can: The Story of Sammy Davis Jr., had been more than five years in the making. An almost cult-like curiosity had grown around it. That the country was rife with turmoil could hardly stop the book's publication now. But there lay around the creation and publication of this book hundreds of hidden little dramas. 
And those dramas, like much of Sammy's life, veered from the comic to the tragic, from the sweetly sublime to the ashes of vaudeville. They illuminated Sammy's ferocious determination in how he wished to present himself to the American reading public, a motherless Negro, absent a culture, more white than black. Yes, I Can was a stunning performance. And it was the making of that book, more than the book itself, that was a crystallization of everything Sammy had thus far mastered in life. Shrewdness, guile, survival, fearless determination, and the switching of masks. Yes, I Can had everything, except the real Sammy. As a New York Times reviewer would ask of the book, can it be that it is now permissible to reveal everything except thought? The book's beginnings date back to the late 1950s in a series of Manhattan nightclubs amid the jumpy voices and smoke and clinking of glasses. It began in the brain of Bert Boyer, Sammy's new sidekick. They had first met when Sammy made his Broadway debut in 1956 in Mr. Wonderful. Boyer, a newspaper man, wanted to write a book. Newspaper men were wont to dream of such things. Boyer's book would be a novel, a novel about a Negro entertainer who rises to the top of the entertainment world. Included would be all the travails along the way, up and around the obstacle course that meandered through white and Negro America. For Boyer, dark-haired, handsome, tweedy, it would be fun, a thrill, an added hobby to life with his elegant and always fashionably attired wife. Jane Feinstein met Bert in 1954 when she waltzed into his Madison Avenue press agent's office. On their first date, while strolling down Fifth Avenue, he told her he was going to marry her. Two years after they were married, the Boyers met Sammy. So much about them intrigued him, not least that they were young and attractive. They were also Jewish, and Sammy who had converted to Judaism, was shameless in his courting of Jews. The novel would be based on Sammy's life, with Sammy as its hero. Bert and Jane did not consider themselves literary purists by any means. They sometimes read Ayn Rand aloud to each other in bed at night, but that was for fun. Their novel would be done quickly. They couldn't imagine it taking more than a year. They'd just bang the thing out, have a romp with it, Inside the nightclub on the evening they pitched the idea to him, Sammy listened as raptly as he did to any promotional idea that involved him. Which is to say, he listened, and between interruptions, he half-listened, and between additional interruptions, he listened some more. There were so many schemes, they came and they went. While he listened, there went the quick jerk of the neck toward the door, following the new arrivals, Sammy waving maniacally, then the head yanking back to Bert, back to this book idea, the tapping of ash in the cigarette tray, the blowing of smoke, and then a blonde, and another, all strolling by just to say hello, their perfume hanging in the air like bubbles. Sammy! Sammy! What the hell? A novel. A book. One night, in another nightclub, another belligerent doorman looking him up and down like a new convict arriving at the state penitentiary, Sammy turned to Boyer and said, If people could just know what it's like. He meant the indignity, 
how you could be made to feel low and hurt even if you had crisp $100 bills in your pocket. And suddenly, drawing in all of Sammy's pent-up pain in that comment, it was as if Boyer's mind had taken on a new engine. Bert Boyer realized that Sammy was talking not about the joy, but about the slights and the pain, the sometimes awfulness of a life lived high one moment, then dragged to the depths of despair the next by doormen who were making a tenth of your salary. Who knew, out there in the hinterland, that beyond the opening nights, the champagne, the Vegas lights, the beautiful small-waisted blondes, the raw, sweet sexual escapades, that he, Sammy Davis Jr., cried, that he hurt. Boyer wrote entertainment columns for a horse-racing paper, and now, as he listened to Sammy vent, imagining new layers for his unwritten novel, the writing juices in him began to gallop. Bert Boyer knew next to nothing about racism or the pain of the Negro. He never marched with any protesters, never arched his back over any social ills. Racism was something over there, something in the history books, in another city. Now Sammy was telling him that there was rot in Manhattan as well. Bert Boyer had an epiphany. If Sammy felt it, racism, Bert would have to start if not feeling it, certainly trying to understand it. He was very despondent. Racism was absolutely deflating, so totally unkind, unnecessary, says Boyer. Bert and Jane began to run alongside Sammy. They were at his New York apartment. They whizzed in and out of the nightclubs with him. Sammy was driving them, only they couldn't easily see it. He was pushing and goading them, telling them they were authors.